Hello everyone and welcome to Anarchy SF, the podcast companion to the Anarchy SF website. I am Eden Kupermintz and with me is Yanai. Yes, I'm here. How are you doing, Yanai? I'm actually doing okay. Okay. Getting used to everything and hoping to stay alive in New York. Yeah, you're like in the epidemic, in, in the center of, of everything. Yes, but in a sectioned off bunker called my apartment. We're going to talk a lot about centers this episode, so I think it's only relevant that you are inside one. This week, month, episode, yeah. we, are going to be <laughs> we are going to be discussing Ursula Le Guin's The Telling. And I think that kind of like we did with Philip K. Dick, we will be using The Telling as a platform to also speak about Ursula Le Guin's greater body of work, because... As we said last time, she is one of my all-time favorite authors, if not the favorite. And Yanai, you have also warmed up to her charms in the last few years. Definitely. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah and, yeah, and I like our choice because it's sort of a deep dive book. It's not the dispossessed that is very common in leftist right. circles. And it's not the world for world is forest, which people who are interested in the Vietnam War must have read. Definitely. And it is also a late book in her career, especially if you count her fiction career, because in the last decade or so, she was mostly focused on writing about writing or writing about religion and belief and feminism and stuff like that, rather than creating fiction. So this is kind of late in her career. The Telling was published in 2000 and is part of Ursula's illustrious career, which began, well, she was born in 1929, and her career really began only when she was older, when she was around 30. So 1959 is like the line in the sand, although those lines never quite mm -hmm. make sense. And she operated in the West Coast of California, specifically Berkeley. And if that sounds familiar, it's because we spoke about it extensively when we talked about Philip K. Dick, because that's where she was born. Even though she roamed all across the West Coast, she spent a lot of time in Portland, one of the best bookstores, science fiction bookstores on the planet are there, and has a whole section dedicated to her. But she was also very much of California and of Oregon and those areas, and that kind of nature really prefigures into her writing. Her father was Alfred Kruber, who was a famous, might say yeah. infamous, anthropologist, who was the person in charge of the Academy's communication with Ishii, who was the last of the Yahi people, a Native American tribe wiped out by white people, as they have done repeatedly all across the planet and in the US especially. And there was a bit of a controversy because he supposedly only translated what Ishii passed on to him, but it turns out he did much more than just quote-unquote translate they not just him him and his colleagues also changed some stuff and showed it in a very specific very racist sort of light but also was very much enamored with anthropology throughout her entire life and some might say that her works are anthropological science fiction yeah and we'll get into what this book does but i think it's interesting i don't know how much this is sort of part of her personal narrative but I think like, specifically this book has a very complex view on anthropology as well as its kind of limits. Yeah, I definitely agree. But then fast forwarding to her middle career where she became 
one of the staples of the new wave of science fiction with books like The Left Hand of Darkness, which was released in 1969. Mm-hmm. Nice. And The Dispossessed, which was released in the much less meme 1974. And other books which centered her inside of this leftist new wave of science fiction alongside other writers, which we have already mentioned, like Philip K. Dick and Samuel Delaney, with which she uh, corresponded and she knew personally, but also many others like Harlan Ellison and, and so on. And she not only became a central figure in leftist anti-war circles, but also in feminist circles, because her books did a lot of interesting deconstructive work with gender, and in Buddhist cycles, as more and more of her writing began to reflect her own Buddhist Taoist beliefs. And she kind of used those intersections to write a lot about literature, culture, religion. So she also did a lot of literary criticism. She's one of the most famous proponents of the satchel theory of writing, which is a whole thing unto itself. But she also expressed a lot of sympathy for anarchy, specifically syndicalism, and so on. She has won multiple awards, the Nebula and the Hugo, of course, and also recognition outside of the science fiction scene. So she won the National Book Foundation Medal, and so on and so forth. And one last thing, she also wrote one of the best criticisms of capitalism, well, an impassioned and literary criticism of capitalism in the form of her acceptance of the National Book Award, where she went after Amazon and other modern-day quote-unquote publishers for what they were doing or are doing to the book industry globally, and also has championed causes to do with unionization of American writers she was involved in a dispute with Google over copyright and how much they're paying authors and has led actual, you know, I won't say worker struggles, but workplace struggles in America. That's it? Yeah. That's her, like, biography intro. I could go on for, like, five hours, but I think that's good enough for now. Yeah, and I think she has a very pivotal role in feminist science fiction and in a lot of writers that came after her and saw her as some of an, somewhat of an example, uh, somewhat like the role that Octavia Butler has for, uh, for more yeah. black writers. Yeah, I agree. And I think that you, you touch on an interesting point. You know, Ursula has become something she would have despised, which is when you want to pay lip service to female writers, you, co- you name Ursula Le Guin Octavia Butler, and Margaret Atwood. That's like the minimum you have to do for your list to be, quote-unquote, progressive. So when big sites do top 100 or top 50 lists, they just include those three writers usually, and then they say, well, we have women, right? We have Ursula Le Guin. And they also erase intersectionality, something that Ursula herself was very cognizant of in the last decade or so, where they don't, well, they do notice, they just don't care that two out of three of those women writers are white, when there are many, many, many non-white women authors out there to cite if only you do more than lip service. So that's kind of the flip side of Ursula's legacy. Like any major legacy kind of becomes a way for not nefarious, but not really interested parties to do the minimum they have to do in order to appear progressive. Yeah, you see it kind of recuperation or co-optation of 
figures to see that with people like Nelson Mandela or MLK were progressive radicals who, you know, their legacy becomes this kind of like platitude laden yeah. idea. And also Le Guin hasn't had that transformation to the fullest, I think, because she only died recently. So she was able to fight against her own. So for example, going after Amazon, you know, she was like at the end of her career, like she was already like pretty old. She knew she didn't have a lot of time left. She wrote about the fact that she knows that. And, you know, going after Amazon, it's like with my dying breath, I would still say, fuck you, capitalism. Yeah. With my dying breath, I curse at thee. Yeah. And I think it's sort of our responsibility as leftists who like science fiction to try to fight against the recuperation of Ursula Le Guin, as well as, as leftists to fight against the recuperation of people like MLK, Nelson Mandela. Yeah. So let's... I, I totally agree with that. And I think it's really interesting with Ursula specifically in mind because she always saw herself, and you can see it in her books, as just the beginning, right? It's just a precursor. Yeah. Someone who wants to open the door to others. So now it is our duty to make sure that those others to whom she opened the door get to step through it, right? And we need to recognize their work and we'll try to do that here on the cast and highlight, you know, different voices, different sorts of people. So moving on to the telling, as I said, it was published in 2000 and it won some awards. It won the Locus Award for best science fiction novel in 2001, but I feel like it's not one of her most famous works or recognized works, which of course brings me great joy because then I can like swoop in and, you know, get, get my hipster points by saying that it's one of my favorite Ursula Le Guin books, but it honestly is. So spoilerless overview, it's part of a Heinish cycle where an empire based on, an intergalactic empire based on knowledge called the Ecumen is trying to piece together humanity's remnants after the galactic empire collapsed. And it does so by biasing knowledge, learning, and limiting technological advances to societies that are quote-unquote ready to receive them, and we'll talk about that later. And it tried to do that with a planet called Akka, but because of technical glitches and the difficulties of space travel, it didn't go quite as planned, and now, because of their exposure to this galactic empire, Akka has chosen to destroy its past. All of its history, religion, poetry, literature, everything has been deemed taboo, and there are strict laws in place on anyone who as much as says a traditional word, and we follow one of the Heinish, well, a human observer called Sati, who, in service to the ecumen, is trying to observe and record Akin society. Yeah, and... That's, that's the overview. Yeah, just to add a couple of things before we go into spoilers, I think the idea of the ecumen in all of these books is sort of, after colonialism, can we imagine a universal superpower that is not colonial, that resists the very idea of being colonial? Yeah. And this book goes into like that's themes of religion, some like civil struggle, but I think ma- mainly like religion and culture in places that have been the victims of colonialism. So one thing I want to call out here, which is the one thing that I really don't like about this book, 
is that it is obviously a parallel to the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution in China. Like, it's painful how much of a parallel it is. I'm, I'm raising my mean, eyebrows <laughs> for no one. Oh, you are? But it's, like, blatantly obvious. So you have a new society that smashed it, the idols of its past, now prefers rigidly, centrally controlled state capitalism, refers to its citizens by their productivity, wears nondescript gray suits to denominate party members, which is obviously a reference to Mao's uniform, and prefers those party members over the rest of society. This is like not my invention. It's like well-documented of a parallel. And also the religion that they are suppressing is very, very... It's basically Taoism and Hinduism. It's almost quotes at points from Lao Zedong's The Book of Tao. And it's very obvious that it is a parallel to that. Now, that is not great because also Le Guin, as a white person in America feeding off of the American propaganda machine has a very, 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 very skewed perception of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which is an incredibly complicated and hard to understand phenomenon, especially for someone who is not Chinese and is not in tune with Chinese culture. So all the parts in the book that get really on the nose and really refer to that stuff are parts that I really don't like. But luckily for us, a lot of it is not about that. A lot of it focuses on the religion being suppressed and how they resist that suppression rather than focusing on the oppressors. So it's still possible for us to salvage good and interesting things from this book. But I think it's a bad miscalculation on Ursula's part. And it's not the only time she's done it, right? Like one of the main criticisms against her for books like The World for World is Forest is that she trivializes native and local cultures. In, in World for World is Forest, it's obviously about Vietnam, and she really trivializes and even does a bit of a noble savage kind of thing with Vietnamese culture. So yeah. I think she, and, yeah, and she sins the same sin on this book, just in a different way. Yeah, and there are problems in this book, and I feel like, so <laughs> let's, let's cut for spoilers. I'll, I'll say something. So if you if you want to read the book before you get spoiled, you should do it before now. Let's start with the actual talking about the plot. So I feel like I agree that this is a problem with Ursula. It stems from, I think, her approach of she would feel very emotional about like uh, world events. And then she would want to challenge those feelings into writing. And she wasn't, she has her own writing, by the way. For example, in the Left Hand of Darkness, she has a, a preface where she talks about like, the role of science fiction. And mm-hmm. she is aware of what she's doing with science fiction. So she's not starting from the place of, I want to write about spaceships and everything, and then I'll come up with what the metaphor is or something like that. She starts from trying to address things that she sees in life and to exaggerate some parts and to replicate some parts. and. She has this challenge of being a white person educated in a white society, and I don't know how she feels about she obviously kind of idolizes like the idea of an anthropologist, but I don't know how critical she was throughout her career of anthropology. But the idea is that as a white person looking at these societies, we are always at risk of seeing them through our own lens. And 
that's why yeah. that's why the first point I want to touch on is sort of an introduction into a whole new field for me at least it was I only came to know this field taking a, a graduate class this semester called decoloniality or decolonialism. Mm-hmm. Yep. And here we must preface that we are also two white men who are talking about a field where it's super important to read the indigenous people who are writing these texts. We cannot convey these points as well as they do. We're just speaking with the voices that we have. So the idea in decolonialism, it comes after a tradition that it is in sort of interaction with called post-colonialism. So post-colonialism is the idea that, okay, there was colonialism, and then the superpowers receded from direct control over the colonized nations. But then they ushered in an era called post-colonialism in which many of the injustices are still there. And post-colonialism deals a lot with, uh, you know, reparations and how we sort of treat the fact that a lot of injustices were done. Decolonialism wants to go one level deeper and say our very understanding, our very translations, our communications with indigenous people are corrupted by the fact that we always think of them through our framework of modernity. So it challenges ideas like we, when we met other cultures, they were not as advanced as us, and we conquered them with our more advanced technology and gave them better science. And it challenges all of those narratives and tries to ask like really complex and difficult questions about it. So how does Ursula Le Guin challenge that in the telling? Well, in the telling, there is a kind of, you know, quote unquote, better technology that the humans bring to Akka. And the problem is that with it, they perform all kinds of mistakes. Some of them just due to greed. They just want to trade with the Akans. But some of them are just honest mistakes of misunderstanding the culture. So in this book, they don't genocide the Akans, which like, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if, they, if you want to read it, like Ursula Le Guin's ideas about genocide, read The War for World is Post. In this book, they don't perform a genocide, but they do harm the, the knowledge structures of the world they are interacting with. Because this world has its own way of thinking, its own culture that they just misunderstand, and they seek to replace it with what seems to them as rationality, logic. Yeah, so here's my problem. My problem with this move that I agree that Ursula attempts to do is that it reframes what happened in China as a result of their meeting with the West. And that is still a colonial framing of what happened there, right? It is still shackling the very intricate and hard to understand internal processes that Chinese culture underwent and it tries to like say oh they just they were given western technology too soon or they were made to think that their culture is inferior so they turned on it and that's a very forget problematic shallow and not nuanced way to see what happened in china during the cultural revolution so the other part of it that Rosala does better is the figure of the monitor like the observer sent from the central Akan government to monitor the Heinish observer and how she makes him into like a nuanced, tortured character that is not really 100% a believer in the new regime, 
but is also playing along because it's complicated, right? It's a complicated heritage, so he's a better character, but Oliver framing as someone came from outside and disturbed what happened to Aken society, and that is the imbalance that needs to be balanced, is just a highly colonial way to look at China. So right? what you're presenting, I think, is one of the challenges of decolonial thought. Decolonial thought is really challenging because you come to it already corrupted with... Yeah. Well, we come to it already We come, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's a tension between saying, you know, there was the good culture and then came the West with its bad culture and then it made bad culture. Because first of all, nothing works like that. But second, it sort of puts on a pedestal a kind of naturalistic view of that culture. Yep. Like there is a true way for that culture to be and yep. every, every transformation and change. But also, as you say, it's also taking away some of the history of that people because, you know, where that people is right now is still part of their history. You can't take that away and say, you know, the before, the before times were, quote unquote, the right times. So, it's, yeah. so within the project of decoloniality, there are a lot of tensions. And when you read the people writing about this, well, they say a lot of things. But one of the things you notice is that it's a lot of talking about problems. Like, yeah. It's easy to put forward like a lot of problems with our idea of understanding indigenous people as the cultures that disrupted, let's use that sort of neutral world, disrupted their cultures. It's always going to be complex and there's not going to be a single theory that's going to help us just like move forward yeah. and, and get out of this decolonial times. Totally. And what's even more frustrating for me is that Ursula shows she has the necessary subtlety and nuance to handle that subject in her handling of religion and technology in this book, which is the first point I want to show, I want to talk about. So like, if you could only take the nuance in which she handles that question and apply it to the colonial question, I think this book would be an even better book and an even better critical tool. So what she does with tech and religion is she builds up, so Sati, the observer from the Heinish Empire, the Ecumen, is a really interesting character, right? Because she has a lot of repetitions and echoes inside of her. She came from a religiously oppressed group, but they were oppressed because they wanted to not be a specific religion. They wanted to just worship whoever they wanted, but a theocracy on earth kind of prevented them from doing that, and cordoned them off in areas called Pales, which is, by the way, a very weird choice by Ursula because Pale was like a ghetto for Jews, but in Eastern Europe, so I don't know why she chose that word. And there was a lot of violence there and terrorism and stuff like that. She is also a lesbian, and Arkan society has banned homosexuality, and she is the emissary of the Heinish to a society that was once religious and now isn't. So she feels very awkward, like, am I not the opposite of who you need? You need an atheist, right? You need, like, a nihilist or something to talk to these people. But the Heinish don't care. They don't want to talk to current Aachen society. They don't want to talk to old Aachen society. She's, like, the perfect tool in the way that these subjects haunt her, right? An echo inside of her. So Ursula builds the first part of the book so that you think that, oh, the story here is going to be technology versus religion, right? Like, the Terrans came, they, you know, kind of like a Star Trek thing, they gave them warp drive too soon, and that kind of broke down their society. 
but the old guard, the religious people, they want to stick to their superstition and to their religion. And now there's like a classic science versus faith clash, which is one of the cringiest things that Star Trek insists on doing like multiple times every single season. Here, you get set up for that, but then it's totally not about that because the traditional people, they don't care. They don't mind using technology. They don't mind like having their lives made easier, but they understand technology as part of their belief in the world, right? Technology is just another thing which you do. And they're not particularly interested in not using or using or resisting technology because technology is like, it's like trees and water and air and the mountain, right? It's just a part of the world, right? And that's probably the point where we need to talk about Tao, right? And this idea of a religion that is based around a very unique and subtle form of knowledge, right? Well, definitive knowledge, knowledge which kind of like pegs something down, is not the true knowing, right? It's a religion which is built around subtlety, nuance, lack of understanding is understanding, and kind of an acceptance of a natural order of things, which very much describes Akan religion. So when that religion meets tech, tech is not like something special to be fought. And also that does a really good job of saying, no, 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 look, look past the tech, right? Look past the fact that the Heinish or the Terrans are more technologically advanced. Think about how, what really causes the clash, what really makes a difference between them is a different kind of epistemology. Right? Like a different kind of how do they know? What do they yeah. think constitutes knowing? For the Akans, the traditional Akans, knowing is telling is participating in a narrative, is saying stories, is teaching history. For the Dovzans, who are like the new Akans, knowing is cataloging and understanding and breaking down into productivity and profit and worth. And for the Heinish, knowing is cataloging in a different sense, in the sense of the librarian, right? In the sense of the Dewey system. Knowing is putting things in their place and understanding, okay, this guy belongs to this planet, so that's what he believes. And she belongs to that different planet, so that's what it believes. So I think the Hainish view on knowledge is, I mean, you describe it correctly, but I think what it's supposed to sort of symbolize is an approach that uses the word knowledge in the plural. So you know that yeah. writing, if you write knowledges in words, it'll autocorrect you. Yes. Knowledge is not... Is not <laughs> Singular. Yeah, this is a, a joke stolen from a professor of mine. So knowledge is supposed to be singular. We all have knowledge, and when two people meet, they sort of compare what they know, and they contribute to this idea of what is knowledge. Yeah. Within decolonial studies, there's this idea that there are actually multiple ways of looking at knowledge, and they don't very easily map onto each other, contradict each other, prove each other, explain each other in each other's terms. And for the Hainish, what they want to do, they think that different knowledges are very valuable, they contain potential, and they want to resist trying to interpret all of the knowledge and represent the knowledge of different I mean, cultures in their terms. Yes. The empire is called the ecumen, right, from ecumenical, which means open to different kinds of knowledge. It's literally what the word means. Yeah. So that's why they're called that. And I think here there's like 
a quote that I want to get from the book, which I think will lay up like your second point, which is, this is Sati saying it to herself when she is writing, like she's doing an end of day summary. And she says, one of the historians of the Randa said, to learn a belief without belief is to sing a song without a tune. A yielding and obedience, a willingness to accept these notes as the right notes, this pattern as the true pattern, is the essential gesture of performance, translation, and understanding. The gesture need not be permanent, a lasting posture of the mind or heart, yet it is not false. It is more than the suspension of disbelief needed to watch a play, yet less than the conversion. It is a position, a posture in the dance. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. And what's also beautiful is that I also wrote down this quote to, to yeah. use at a certain point of this chapter. Yes. And this does sort of connect to my second point because, wait, first I want to say something about something that you mentioned briefly. You mentioned that the Akans oppose lesbian relationships. And that's a fallout of an idea in decolonialism that a lot of, so we often think about religious people as sort of backwards, traditional, against yeah. progress, stuff like that. But yeah. a lot of, for example, homophobia is a Western thing. It did yeah. not exist in that form in other places. And that's the case in Akka, because the old religion just doesn't really have a position on homosexuality. But when humans came, the specific humans that came were theists, and they brought with them their idea of their religion, and that religion has something to say about homosexuality. So now Akans think that homosexuality is somehow irrational. Right. So that's just an important point to know, and if anyone is curious or thinks that like, the West discovered this idea of LGBTQ rights, well, it had to discover that idea because it also discovered the idea of oppressing LGBTQ people. Yeah. So, yeah. But to the point of that beautiful quote, so the, the point of uh, try to sing a song without the tune is that there's something special in the way we think about scientific knowledge. We sometimes conflate scientific knowledge with knowledge in general. Now, scientific knowledge is a very efficient way of maintaining knowledge. It has some good attributes. For example, it's easy to disconnect the knowledge from the person who said the thing. It's easy to reproduce. It's easy to check. It's easy to you know, criticize and disprove if something false enters into the system. There's a lot of advantages within it. But also, it's one way of looking at knowledge. And it's a, it's a very dispassionate yeah. way. So the British Scientific Academy, its, its motto was, in the words of no one, right? So science is supposed to be, you know, something that you can just look at on its own. It doesn't come from anywhere. You don't have to say it. You don't have to believe it. It's just, it's, the proof is in the pudding. And what she's saying yeah. about the religion of the telling is that you don't have to accept the religion of the telling. You don't have to be part of it, but you also can't just hear a couple of the things they say and translate it into knowledge. It's a whole way of looking at the world, which you can or cannot accept. And to try to ask, how does this view measure up against science is to ask the wrong question. And this sort of pulls me in the direction of talking about Kierkegaard, but I'll kind of resist that because Kierkegaard is not a very decolonial kind of writer. I'll talk about him in a, in a, <laughs> uh, when we get another chance. But yeah, yeah, there's this idea that knowledge can take many forms. And 
there's so there's an interesting point made by a philosopher called uh, Sarah Harding, who says that indigenous people had a lot of forms of knowledge that they needed. So it's almost sort of mm-hmm. analytical to say that people usually have the kind of knowledge that they need to survive in their own environment. So they yeah. had their methods of navigating the sea, of finding the things that you need to eat, of finding your prey, of not killing too many animals so that you don't have food for tomorrow. And some of those were sort of intertwined with rituals, with spiritual ideas, right? So sometimes you say that you have to respect the spirit of the animal so you can't kill too many of them. And then we come with science and we say, wait, the spirit of the animal, that's an unproven concept, right? How do you show that there's a spirit for the animal? And what Sarah Harding is saying is, saying is well, that's kind of not the point. The point is that those knowledges are useful for the job that they're supposed to do. But also, I want to interject here and say that, so I get like Sarah Harding's position, and I've actually read some of her stuff, and it's brilliant. But I want to go one step further and say, like, it's not just a teleological argument, right? That this has a purpose, therefore it is okay. Like the spirit, whatever, does it exist? Does it not? It doesn't matter, because the point is to preserve the buffalo herd so that we can keep on hunting. The point is that for the ritual to be effective, for a society to be built around religion, the basic gesture, and that's why Ursula uses the word gesture here, the basic gesture is to believe, right? That is how you participate in religion. You can't, and this is like controversial, I'm sure many people won't agree with me, but I'm going to go all in, and I'm actually going to talk about a Facebook group that we're both in, and they'll agree with me, eschatological uh, posting, which is like a group for like millennial Christian weirdos, which I love, I love that group, but this is an idea that I got from there from the last few years, like, if you go to Mass and you participate in the Christian ritual, in that moment that you participate and believe and affirm your belief, you are more religious than Thomas Aquinas or Augustine or any number of philosophers who intellectualize religion. Now, they also went to Mass and they also believed, right? But the point is that the basic gesture of religion is not to enumerate the qualities of God or debate about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. It's about believing. It's about affirming your ties to your community, to God, to reality, to existence, to belief, to ritual, right? So when the anthropologist, not just the scientist, the scientist in charge of looking at other cultures, sits to the side at the hut that he was assigned by the natives and opens up his notebook and starts to write about the ritual, he will not understand the ritual because the main part of the ritual is to participate in it. And the main gesture of the ritual is to believe in the spirit, in God, in angels, and in whatever the ritual is aimed at, right? So... And within the yeah. telling, that's exactly, maybe that's what you were going to say. Within the telling, that's exactly what happens. Yeah. So the researcher right. can't just like stay, she starts from this position of I have to stay kind of neutral, but then she understands that she's going to have to go all in and sort of embrace this faith and its teachings if she wants to understand everything. And the understanding, the limited understanding that she gets in the end of the book can only come yeah. out from this process of belief. 
yeah, I keep like setting up your points. <laughs> so I'll get to mine soon. But like this feeds into what you wrote in the document exactly. It's like anthropology is not us or how I understand what you wrote. It's not us using like an objective and magical lens to look at a society and figure it out. Like we bring our biases into it. We bring our histories into it. And Sati moves through shedding those biases. So she starts very analytical. It's like, what's the genus? What's the domain? What's the kingdom? What's the, 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 the philia? Sorry, I didn't actually yeah. take biology at any point in my life. So, <laughs> But like, what's the taxonomy of this religion? And then as she starts to like unravel it, she's like, well, is there a taxonomy? Do these people like think about the hierarchy of their ideas? You know, is the tree the one or are the branches the five? They don't care about that because they're actually living the religion. And for them... That gesture of hearing the story and telling the story and being part of the story. You know, there's the really good quote by one of the oldest Maz, which are like the teacher, philosopher, priests of this religion, that the story begins when your life ends. Right? And it's not because the story is what's after your life. It's because your life is the story. And the only moment where we can start telling your story is when it's done. Because otherwise it's still happening. So everything you do, like, you go to work, you work out, you bury someone, you eat, you do all that stuff. That is part of the telling. That is part of the story. That is part of religion, right? And there's no clear cutoff. I don't know if you noticed, but Hegel is kind of peeking over your shoulder. Hegel is always peeking over my shoulder. That guy's a creep. So the point I wrote down was non-ideal anthropology. And I think the character of the anthropologist here is, as he said, really interesting. And here's something interesting about this character. A couple of times in the book, she says something, and then in her inner monologue, she says, wrong. Wrong. Which, yeah. which is just a brilliant tool, I think, for two reasons. Yeah. First of all, from the start, Ursula Le Guin, you know, she has to choose the kind of reader insert character. Through whose eyes do we see this, this world? Yeah. And we spoke about this when we spoke about The Girl in the Road, that a lot of traditional science fiction use this kind of you know, bland man, rationalist, with clear goals, who can objectively analyze the world. And that's how he, you know, I say man because it was always a man, right? That's how he kind of tells us about the world from his objective viewpoint. But yeah. also Le Guin, like, immediately deconstructs this idea that the Hainish idea, in some senses, kind of resembles this idea of trying to stay distant and, you know, unbiased. but we immediately see that she starts by failing. She constantly fails. She uses the wrong address to talk to people. She mentions ideas that she shouldn't. She constantly says wrong. And now the second move is that she says wrong, but the people around her never react to the wrong thing that she said. Yeah. It's not actually that wrong. So she's you know, coming into this with this idea that there's a specific way in which she's supposed to be an anthropologist, right? She has this view of like how do you do this correctly and the people around her don't really care about that they don't mind that she sometimes you know uses the wrong terminology sometimes they'll comment on it sometimes they won't but what we get and i feel like this is the, the most radical that Ursula Le Guin can get because she's sort of saying here's my author insert character Here's the person trying to make sense of it all and trying to be, you know, level-headed, but she also fucks up all the time 
And she's even wrong about, she's sometimes wrong about whether or not she fucked up. So it kind of primes us, you know, to challenge this idea of like, who's the anthropologist in the story? Like, why do we think that the anthropologist is such a good, you know, window into the souls of these people? That's why I called it like a non-ideal anthropology, because the person like giving the report is himself compromised, not in a, you know, unreliable narrator sense that we don't know what reality is, but in the sense that she brings her own biases, she makes mistakes. She overanalyzes. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons that I like this book so much. The character that is Sati and her complexity, it also kind of like highlights the genius of the acumen in that you're right that they want to look at it from a distant place, but they send observers, right? And those observers are like, they get to decide whether a planet will or won't join the acumen. And the high, there's no council, there's no like hierarchy. You don't have to call home. You are trained and then you get sent there to actually experience the planet and the culture that you're on and actually participate in it before you go back to the center. And that idea of the center is like something that comes up again and again in the telling and in Ursula's writing or rather the lack of a center, right? Both the ecumen and the telling and Akka I think that's one of the most important parallels in this book, lack a firm center. So the ecumen has Hein and it has its universities, but there are universities on Earth, right? Sati was trained on Earth in Chile. So there are centers of the ecumen in all the planets that are part of it, and you get taught there instead of everyone coming to Hein. And what you get is like less biases, less blind spots, because you don't have the fallacy or like an inherited fallacy from the center. And with Akka, it's less planned, but the religion, there's no one book, right? That's what Sati keeps looking for, a canon, one book to tell the Bible. There isn't any, because the telling is, is the world, right? It is life. In that sense, you could say that this book is like, like the world for world is forest, except the world for world is word, right? It's like story. That's how the telling looks at it. And that's a really interesting concept, again, to do with decolonialism and postmodernism this idea that the second you institute a center and the second you institute an epistemological center for your system of ideas is the second that you also institute running away from that center breaking away from that center defying its rules so the center becomes an anxiety so think about catholicism right it defines orthodoxy And then it spends all of its time limiting and policing heterodoxy, right? It defines what is true and what is right and what is correct. And then that creates like an anxiety that that has to deal with all that stuff that's not correct. Same thing for science, right? It has like a hypothesis and then it has to set out and disprove or prove the hypothesis on the backs of all the other ideas and theories and suppositions out there right and it's not necessarily a bad thing but what Ursula is trying to do with the telling and with the acumen is to posit a different kind of thought which doesn't set out to you know delimit a center doesn't send out to say this is the core and the rest is periphery but sets out to create many centers or a fragmentary schema within which all sorts of Again, knowledges in plural are able to like compete, interact, talk to each other, learn from each other, 
and so on. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because this book is very has a very idealized view of the religion. It's of the telling of the kind of religion or uh, culture that it's describing. But in the one place where it's critical of that religion, it basically says before there was this center, before there was the current government of Akka with its scientific ideas. There was also hierarchy within the old religion. That was a degeneration of the old religion, which happened and formed the center. And that's when things started to actually go wrong. Yeah. So that's presented as, you know, when this religion tried to or accidentally or, you know, a center emerged, it also became a place of power that everything was related to. And it also became oppressive in its own way. Yeah. And that's really the core of the anarchism here, right? Because that is a very anarchist point. Instead of seeing, you know, the usual and cliche arboreal or rhizomatic structures like horizontal or vertical, it's a different geometric analogy that says that, you know, you guys want to come in, come together and make a very strong center from which we can operate. But we are telling you that a strong center is inherently oppressive in and of itself. And, and then anarchists many times point to the excesses of places like the Soviet Union or other like communist um, attempts or experiments where the center became so important that it became more important than workers, it became more important than the actual will of the people. The center, the party, the ideology became what we rally around instead of the good of the society in which we live. Now we can like, do the left book thing and argue a million times whether that's correct or not. But I think it's a good point when you do politics and when you think about better societies to consider how you build into your societies criticism and dispersal methods of power, right? Like what happens if something turns tyrannical? How, how many of the eggs are in the same basket, Yeah. right? Because if all the eggs are in the same basket... Right. And this is like a Platonist point, right? Because Plato talks about how different societies die and transform into other societies. And he says that one of the good traits of the just society is that it knows how to not degenerate, but like break apart. It knows how to turn into something else. It knows how to stay dynamic. So I think that's what Ursula is saying here as well. Like if you put too many eggs in that political basket, someone can come along and just run away with the basket, right? And you lose everything. Whereas where something is decentralized and it exists in like in the thing itself and in the gesture itself, then it becomes more resilient and open and able to survive. Which kind of leads me to my last point, which is at the end of the day, what survives? Like what resists? And what resists is actual life, right? If the telling is the world and the story is you, then living your life and telling the story is resistance, right? That kind of like decentralized existence becomes a defiance of the center. It, and, and that's why Dovza is obsessed with finding these people and burning their books and preventing them from telling their stories because as long as they do, they are an alternative to the center. They destabilize the center. Yeah, by having their own way of life that doesn't rely on the center. Exactly, like posits a different way to look at yeah, and that's, and that's a very, so, I mean, that's yeah. also a very anarchist point about, you know, building communities, networks of support, networks of, you know, praxis, where just by making it so that more of those things exist, more places to talk, more places to help each other in small ways, 
to sort of decentralize power. Yeah, exactly. So I want to end the discussion by quoting from two places that kind of, I think, tie the telling into a wider culture or thought about resistance, knowledge, and the center. So I'll start with the hard quote. I'll start with the French quote. <laughs> and then I'll go to like a more poetic kind of version of that. So the first quote is from Derrida's Structure, Sign, and Play in the Discourse of the Human Sciences, which he published How do you fail to remember that, Eden? Yeah, it's so simple and intuitive. In this essay, he kind of talks about a lot of these ideas, center, the collapse of the center, what he calls free play, which is like playing without rules. A lot of these concepts that you really have to like read Derrida to really get into, which is a hard endeavor, but worthwhile. But there's a part at the end of this essay, which is not a very long essay, it's like 13 pages, where he talks about what post-humanists are trying to move past and what humanism does that is so wrong. Right? And the, I think humanism has kind of been like floating in the background of this discussion. The center here is the human, right? the definition of normal, sane, proper, smart, Western, civilized. And that feeds back into decolonialism and stuff like that. And what Derrida says is that the other, which is no longer turned toward the origin and tries to pass beyond man and humanism, has dreamed of full presence, the reassuring foundation, the origin, and the end of the game. Right? So what he's trying to say here is that when we seek to move past humanism, when we seek to move past the center, we don't want to just replace the center, that humanist Western center, with something else. We want to discover a real foundation, a real origin, which is the centerless. Right? which is the origin and the end of the game, from which the game came, which is reality and existence and everything, and which is also the end of the game because there are no more rules, there's no more this or that. There is things and events and occurrences, right? And we try to understand them in a way which is more less, less centralized, right? Not seeking a new foundation, seeking a baseless foundation from which to work for. And I think that's extremely anarchist, right? Don't just give me the flavor of the day just in a different flavor. Give me something entirely different. Give me a, a play free from rules. And in the second quote, which I think Ursula consciously re was referencing when she wrote that quote about the dance, is from William Butler Yeats among schoolchildren, probably the least anarchist yeah. poet you could think of. <laughs> But I think he touched on a really important point, which also echoes a lot of German idealism and stuff like that. In the last stanza of Among Schoolchildren, one of his most famous poems, this is one of my favorite things ever written on the planet, this last stanza, which goes, Labor is blossoming or dancing well. The body is not bruised to pleasure soul, nor beauty born of its own despair nor blear-eyed wisdom out of midnight oil. O chestnut tree, great-rooted blossomer, are you the leaf, the blossom, or the bowl? O body swayed to music, O brightening glance, how can we know the dancer from the dance? 
So that's the same idea, right? Like a tree prefigures in a lot of the telling, right? Their main belief is of a tree and it's flowering and the branches and all that stuff. Who are you to say that, no, the bark is the tree or the leaves are the tree or the roots are the tree? It's the tree, right? It's, it's an object which you cannot like break down. It's the experience. It's the gesture. And this is why the telling is like one of my favorite books of all time, because it does such a good job of tantalizing you with these ideas but it never falls into Robert Heinlein-esque dictation of ideas, right? It's always telling you, it's always showing you what is happening instead of dictating. Yeah, it's a venture into a different way of knowing, a very yeah. persuasive way. Awesome. So tell me, anything else that has been you've been doing, consuming lately? I'm afraid nothing worth mentioning. I, I tried some stuff and... Nothing that I'd say is very is very interesting, and I'm kind of in a rut with, uh, with all this time at home. Have you have you seen or yeah read anything interesting? So I'm reading Jeff Vandermeer. All right, um, you know that's always good for me. <laughs> I'm reading Shriek, which is a surprise, a very weird and unsettling book. It's set in his Ambergris universe is like a trading city on the verge of the coast that was built on the genocide of a fungus-like people. Okay. And those like fungus-like people now live below it. And it's actually super relevant to our discussion because it deals a lot with, you know, like fungal structures that don't have a center and knowledge and insanity and madness and ecology and urbanism. Seriously, just read Jeff Vandermeer. <laughs> it's so good. And it's, it's also a very interesting book because... It's an afterword that a sister is writing for her brother's history manuscript, but he's annotating the afterword in brackets. Oh. What so a she weird, writes... Weird framing device. And she, yeah, and she, like, she writes about their history, and he corrects her and says, no, this is bullshit, this is not how it happened. So a lot of games between like unreliable narrators, personal history, knowledge, politics, super good. Cool. Next time, yeah. we're going to talk about some of the music by Clipping that has some... Uh, yes. Uh, maybe we're going to Afrofuturism stuff, because I think that's where they're going with some of their music. For sure. Yeah, uh, we'll be talking about Clipping's Splendor and Misery, and also The Deep, which is a single that actually became a book and won the Nebula Award. Um, I did not know that. So it's, Yep, so it's inherently science fiction, and it's Afrofuturistic and decolonial and awesome. So if you want to get prepared for next time, go listen to Splendor and Misery, and we'll see you then. Yeah. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank As you. always, if you're looking for more content like this, just go to anarchysf.com, where there's literally just so much stuff. Even we don't know all the stuff that's in there. So yeah. just troll around and have fun, and we'll see you next time. See ya.